Thanks for joining us today on Mormon Land, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce. I oversee the Solid Tribune's faith coverage. I'm joined again by Senior Religion Reporter Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Dave. We remind our listeners about another way to support Mormon Land. Just go to patreon.com, where with a small donation, you can access transcripts to our podcast, our complete newsletter, and all of our exclusive religion coverage. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Mormonland. Now for today's show. There are plenty of people counted as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who don't necessarily make their memberships count. They're not all in, but they're not all out either. They may have issues with the church's theology, history, policies, practices, people, or any number of other reasons. Some eventually leave, but many stay, clinging to the fringes of the faith. It's to this diverse and disparate audience that today's guest, author Christian Kimball, addresses his new book, Living on the Inside of the Edge, a Survival Guide. A former bishop, Kimball, who describes himself as a 25-year veteran backbencher in a blue shirt and no tie, doesn't prod these so-called edge dwellers to stick it out. In fact, he says exiting the church may be the best move for some. But he also doesn't urge these, quote, middle way members to bolt. Rather, he offers practical and practicable advice for how adult Latter-day Saints can navigate the nexus of affection and disaffection, doubt and certainty, belief and disbelief, activity and inactivity, and be at home on the, quote, inside of the edge of Mormonism. Christian, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be with you. <laughs> we're glad to have you. Well, first, some personal uh, questions. You were an all-in member, returned to missionary, married in the temple, served as a bishop. What prompted you to pull back and move to the edge? Um, my experience as bishop might be a, a short way to describe that. It was a one of the most important, valuable, powerful things I've ever done in my life, and it was most difficult things I've ever done in my life, um, and very destructive, as it turned out, to my relationship with the church. Um, and one short way to describe that is doing a couple of hundred Temple Recommend interviews made that whole process feel like a, um, I, like a fraud, like a mistake, like something that didn't work right, that I could not manage. And coming off being a bishop after being released, I found for myself that I could not deal with the Temple Recommend interview process and uh, turned in my Temple Recommend. That That's a pretty clear dividing line that almost by definition doesn't mean you're out of the church, but it puts you out on the fringes pretty quickly. Huh. Uh, I I'm just curious, what, what about the Temple Recommend interview thing that, uh, um, that, that got at you? Yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm trying hard, and I tried hard in this book, not to be uh, critical of the church or the programs, mm -hmm. and I, um, I'm trying not to do that. I, I have plenty I could say, but that's, that's not this current project. Um, but so, it's emphasized for myself. I felt like the questions were not the right questions. They were not evaluating what might make sense to evaluate if I were to write my own questions. The questions didn't have good answers. They didn't know what to do when people had a 
half of an answer or even had a question about, well, what does that mean? And ultimately, I came to the feeling that the whole worthiness interview, Temple Recommend interview was about, and I hesitate to do this because this is, you know, this is me being pretty hard on my on the whole system, but it felt like an entire system of control, that it was built mm. to control members as opposed to um, operate the temple in ways that were good or healthy or that it, that it, that it, it came to feel like a system of control rather than a system of um, of uh, of um, of a good religious practice. I mean, I could not, I could not pack it into whatever made sense to me, as a as a as an uplifting, valuable, um, inspirational religious practice, which is what I wanted. I mean, I, I went into being a bishop as saying, this is the thing, this is the one thing that I can do, I can try to do right. I can try to do this all in, full heart, and do it right. And I found I couldn't do it right. I mean, I just could not, I could not do, I could, I could not make it work the way, a way that felt right to me. Mm -hmm. let, let me ask you one more that it, it, it's certainly personal too, but have you been happier in the space that you're in now than when you were a fully practicing member? Um, happy is a, happy is an odd word. I have, <laughs> I, I have felt much more whole. I think of it in terms of integrity, in terms of wholeness. Um, I've I've been furiously white hot angry about some things, including about the temple recommend process. And I don't know that you can match anger with happiness, so that's why I say happiness is it. But um, but I have felt like I'm operating. Um, I'm, I'm 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 honest about who I am. I can talk with my bishop about who I am and what I do and what I don't do. I I can and that feels good. I mean, on the other hand, I've been angry um, for about ten years, from the mid '90s to the mid aughts. I silenced myself. I basically um, no one, no church leader ever did that to me, but I did. Um, I've shut down. I mean, I determined I would, if I couldn't, it was sort of the simple principle from, you know, from your mother's knee, that if you can't say anything positive, you should not say anything at all. Sort of on that principle, I will, I'm just not going to speak up because anything that comes out of my mouth is going to sound like I'm furiously angry and yelling at people. And I don't know that that would have happened. I've, I'm I'm a better lawyer than that, for one thing. But that's how it felt inside, so I silenced. Um, and actually, you know, part of the process of coming to this book was, I, maybe, you're, maybe you want to talk about this later, but in 2015, when the exclusion policy came to be known in November of 2015, um, that was an event that almost caused me to leave in a more formal way. But I decided not to. I decided to stay as much a backbencher as ever, but still to stay um, involved and engaged. But with a decision that I would take off that filter, that I would stop worrying about how I sound, that I would speak up, that I would talk 
and that I would take off the filter that said, maybe they'll kick me out, maybe they won't like it, maybe I'll make people unhappy, um, take that filter off. I mean, I still worry about being socially correct and polite and not making, you know, not hurting people with what I say, but that, um, you know, what will they think? What will, will I cause, will I make waves? In 2015, I decided to take that filter off and to speak up. And I guess without doing that, I wouldn't have written the book. I mean, there's, I'm exposing myself pretty, quite a bit in this book. And uh, it wouldn't have happened if I, if I were still in a silent mode. So while you've not had a recommend, have you had callings? Yes. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've been a home teacher, a minister. I, it's sort of a joke, but it's sort of real. Right now, I'm, I am visiting with a, fr- a, a friend in the ward, another man. Um, we are, we are both. I don't want to overcharacterize him. I think the eldest corn president looks at the both of us and says, "I don't know what to do with you." So maybe if you talk to each other, that will be good. Uh, I have, I have along the way. Um, been a gospel doctrine teacher. That's the one calling that people seem to, every time a bishop or a, or the Sunday school president thinks that the ward could use a, a, a class where there's a discussion, a relatively open-ended, um, not, not carefully capped to what are the proper things to say kind of discussion, less, kind of lesson, I get a call to be a gospel doctrine teacher. And I've done in the last 25 years, probably six or seven years that way. Um, it always happens that someone comes along and says, no, we can't have that kind of class. We have to be by the book. And then I get released. And then, you know, then another bishop comes along and we go through this cycle again. So let's turn to your book here. Um, why did you write it? And how did you come up with the title? Um both interesting. I one of the other things that happened in 2015 with that exclusion policy is that Steve Evans, who is the founder proprietor of BCC Press, which ended up being the publisher here, and that's all connected. Um, Steve Evans, who probably only knew me by reputation or something I had written, he wrote me a note and he said which said, we are seeing our friends leave the church. I don't like this. We need to write a book. And that um, this book isn't, I mean, Steve and I didn't work on this together. I wrote this. Um, This happened years later. But that planted the seed. That said, there's an audience. There's a need. there's, um, There's a question that needs to be dealt with. That's the beginning. Um, Some years later, I got involved with an online group on on Facebook, in fact, a private group, but it involves several thousand people, actually, who are who are kind of this the audience of this book. I mean, people who are troubled by something about the church who you might I mean, the common common lingo is it's a faith crisis, but who have an interest in sticking around and have an interest in still being engaged in some way. And that leads to lots of conversations. Um, I got involved there. I got to be 
um, reasonably visible, wrote quite a few things that were well received. And that said to me, not only is there a need, but you actually have something to say. And and then and then COVID came along and there was an extra slot of time to to do something. And and that's really where I mean the writing happened in the bulk, although I had bits and pieces and essays that I'd written. The writing happened in the bulk over the COVID period. So the title? Oh, and the title. Well, I think I came up with it. I mean, it sort of floated in my mind in 2016, 2017, 2018, as if you ever do something, this is the title. And I treated it as a working title for a long time until I started having other people reading drafts and, you know, talking to a publisher and they liked the title too. So we ended up with it. Um, since then, because, because I wanted to know, I've done a little research and I know that Richard Rohr used a line. I think he was talking, I think he used edge of the inside in, in some lecture he gave in 2014. Um, David Brooks picked up that line and used it in an essay several years later, which is probably the better known source. Um, and so I'm sure that phrase was floating around somewhere and I saw it, but not with any attribution, the way those kinds of ideas float in the air. And so when I came up with it, I thought it was mine, but I later learned that other people had used phrases that were close enough that I probably, you know, my brain molded that all together. It did turn out to be exactly right. I mean, it's very descriptive and I, and it's valuable because I have found that for, for my, for my real target audience, for the people I was focused on thinking about when I was writing, that title communicates immediately. I mean, I can, I can tell people who are in that target audience the title and they immediate, they'll say, I, I, I need that book. I want that book. I mean, I have to figure out whether you did a good job and whether it's, you know, whether I can read, you know, whether it's well-written or not, but I, but I know you're on my topic by the title alone. And, and by that, it's, it, it's worked well. It's also reflective. I mean, Juanita Brooks talked about riding on the edge of the herd. Oh, I didn't pick that one up, but it, um, and that's, way back that would be that would be um many that's middle of the 20th century yes so christian you were you were a bishop yet in the book and i I might be overgeneralizing a little bit you you essentially flatly advise members living on this inside of the edge against talking with the bishop except under certain circumstances could you explain when you think members should and should not talk with their bishop Yes, um, that that's an interesting that 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 whole description is probably the first writing I did. I mean, if you if you were to go back years to the to the first things I wrote that became this book, I mean, they've been rewritten twenty times. Not one word of that is still in the book, but that concept or what became that chapter is probably the beginning, and that's thematically sort of the core. Um, I, I mean, I'll get there. Long intro here. Um, I do start that chapter out with "Don't, don't talk with the bishop," and that's 
first shock value. That's the way you open the chapter so that people will pay attention. Um, what I'm really saying uh, is that the general model that we grew up with as a as members talking to bishops is of uh, of a kid talking to a father. I mean, you go to your bishop as a father image, um, as and as a man who has all the answers, who is speaking from God, to God. And this book is saying if you're in that liminal world of on the edge, but still wanting to be engaged, that's that's a that's a failure. That's a not survivable way to deal with the church. If you stay in a child talking to your dad kind of mode, if you go to your bishop to be told what to do or to be told what you did wrong, um, that's not survivable. I mean, if you stay in that mode, you're going to get kicked out, you're going to leave yourself, or you're going to force yourself all the way back in. And so for this world of living on the edge, but but still engaged, the only way you can survive that is to restructure your relationship with the church so that you have adult-to-adult -adult conversations. And when you can do that, then yes, go talk with your bishop. But when you talk with your bishop, do it as an adult talking to an adult. Um, I know you've got this concern, but that isn't my concern. Um, what what should we do here? I mean, we know, most of us know, how that kind of conversation works in a business environment, in our, you know, in our relationship with our adult friends. You have those kinds of conversations where, which are very different than a child talking to his father. Um, and so that's, that's when you say, Yes, you're going to go talk to your bishop about the temple recommend. You're going to go talk with your bishop when you need to have some welfare assistance. I mean, there, there are half a dozen different ways that you will have to. But um, and but even those, I mean, don't do that until you can get yourself in a frame of mind that you're having an adult to adult kind of conversation. So. You said in one chapter that you've had several even profound spiritual experiences and at least one kind of miracle, yet you reject what you call magical thinking. What do you mean by that? Um, I, magical thinking is 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 the title of that chapter, and it's, it's again, to be provocative. I mean, people hear that and think, I, I disagree already, and I go to some length to talk about that. It's it's a really important concept. Thank you for asking, Peggy. It, because magical thinking that I'm talking about and that I think is a problem really boils down to certainty. The magical thinking is the idea that you will get an answer, that you will pray and get an answer, that you will ask for a blessing and it will happen, that you will, um, if you do the right thing, you will get to heaven. Um, it's the certainty, the if then that is really problematic. And it's it's problematic in a in an overall religious sense. I mean, I think this is a general principle for an adult practice of a religious faith in in all respects. The idea that if I do this, then I get that blessing for sure. The if then there is really troubling, is really damaging. And that's the magical thinking that I'm talking about getting out of, which still allows lots of room for numinous experiences for spiritual guidance for answers to prayer for things happening 
It's not that we can't have those experiences. It's not that we can't have questions and agnostic feelings as well. I mean, that whole range and mix of, of belief and understanding and answers to prayer is still available. The thing that we that I preach that I'm saying we can't go to is the if-then certainty. If I do X, I get Y. That's the danger. That's the danger point. Not the, you know, not the hoping for answers, but it's, I mean, you, you go back to go talk to the bishop. You go talk to the bishop and say, you know, I'd like you to use your own inspiration to give me your answers or the best you can or your wisdom or whatever it is. Give me the best you can. And you're taking it with a, you're another man trying to, you know, you're another human being trying the best you can with uncertainty to work it out. But I want your wis- wisdom. I want your insight. Now you're working in a valuable model where you have an, a, a, a conversation. But if you go to the bishop and say, you've got the answers, you're the magic man, you just listen to God and he will tell you and you tell me, now you're asking for magic. And that doesn't work. And that's a mistake. That's that's a failure point. I guess that's what I'm saying. That don't, you know, the magic isn't there. The, the certainty isn't there. So... I was, of course, intrigued by your Star Wars uh, (laughs) metaphor because my husband's a huge Star Wars fan. But what's wrong with young men thinking they could be Yoda and and have this kind of power to do good? What's wrong with that? Well, it depends on how they take it, right? It depends on how they take it. That, That Star Wars um, metaphor actually comes from one of my readers as we were working. I mean, after reading the an earlier draft of this chapter, he came back to me and said, there's a whole generation of men younger than you who grew up on Star Wars and their model is going to be the force. That's what, that's what they grew up with. So, so put it in there because that will communicate to a, to about two generations of young men who are younger than you are. And that, I mean, that's one of the values of having a reader group, right? But the way I took it is, and the way I take it now is that for some people, Yoda is Spencer W. Kimball. And for some people, the, you know, the force is something that you work with, you can make good things happen, you can maybe bad things happen, but it is... Um, not um, it takes effort, but it still has the idea it it still has that uncertainty that I think is necessary. But I think that all too many young men, and I, I mean, I don't want to cut out women, but I think this this particular example is is a lot more young men than it is anyone because else. it's priesthood, right? Because it's priesthood. and yeah. it's and I think that um, too many took, you know, Yoda's instruction and the force as if you get it right, then it becomes mechanical. Then that sword will turn on every time. Then it will, you know, then you can lift the space ship, whichever, whatever they called it, um, by force of will, but it will work. You know, it's like turning a light switch. And that's, that's the thing that, that's where it gets to be a problem. If you get to thinking of the force like turning a light switch, and I'm afraid that too many people got that message, got the message that if you do everything right, it becomes like a light switch. So you, you say that 
you you write that that members enduring a, a faith crisis or, or wavering on wavering on leaving the church may feel, as you say, called to stay for a number of legitimate yet personal reasons. Um, you talk about including maintaining fa- family connections or belonging to a community. Yet you also warn about drawbacks of these. I mean, you you say that these are certainly permitted and, and valid valid reasons, but they may not have they they may not last. Could you talk a little bit about that? You know, there's there's actually two sides to that. Um, I thought it was important to describe ten or twelve reasons people might stay, because the communication we sometimes get from the pulpit is there's only one. And if that isn't working for you, then you're out. And I, I think that's that's harmful, actually. If if the message you get from the pulpit is, if you don't fit this box, if you don't fit in this model of belief or of reason to stay, then you're no longer, you know, then you're out of the church. You're no longer a legitimate member. I think that's dangerous. And so I felt like it was really important to remind people that there's a dozen different perfectly legitimate reasons. And you you can have your own. You don't have to wait for someone else to say that one's okay. Um, these are all okay. But the flip side that I thought was also important, because, because what I want to talk about here is a, this whole book is about a lasting lifetime kind of experience. It's not about get back, you know, stick around for next year. It's about, is there a way we can live on the inside of the edge in a relationship with the church that is not all in, but that we can be there for years, for decades, for our life? And to take that kind of long perspective, you have to talk about the fact that things change over time and that every reason I have ever seen or experienced myself or people have talked about for staying for staying, for believing. Um, I observe that for many people, not for everybody, but for many people, those reasons have a life cycle. I mean, they're important reasons while I have um, minor children in the home, and this is something I want for the way the family is working. But then the kids grow up and they go away to college and they leave the church themselves and that whole rationale disappears. Um, not that it was wrong at the time, but it, it disappears because I'm talking about, I'm trying to talk about years, decades of life and how this experience works. You may have a vivid, powerful, life-changing spiritual experience in 2002 that makes the decision for you. And I'm in, and I'm here, and I know what I'm doing. But 20 years later, that was a 20-year-old experience, and I and and we as human beings have to wonder: Well, did that really happen? Did it really mean what I thought it meant? What I mean, that's that's life. I mean, memories fade, and that I I'm trying in this book to talk. I'm, I'm, I'm not preaching to people you need to stay. I'm, I'm trying to talk about how you make it work and how you make it work over a lifetime. And my belief is that to make this work for, the lang- for a long time, you end up with multiple reasons 
you end up with multiple reasons to be engaged at any one point in time, and you end up with multiple reasons to be engaged over the course of a lifetime. Maybe children at one point, it may be testimony at another point. It may be, as I described, um, right now in my life, the people I'm talking to right here, but the people of this book, I mean, the people I'm addressing, the people who are who know Mormonism, who are, but are troubled and on the edge, but who are wanting to be engaged. I know hundreds of those people, and I have a pretty close group of 50 or 60 of people like that. That's the coolest people I know. I mean, those conversations are fascinating. They're, I mean, that's, right now, that's my, I mean, I'm, I'm in a really good ward. I love my ward. That's a, I, I like that. But the 50 or 60 people that I have fairly often frequent conversations who are in this class of Inside of the Edge, um, those are, that's a cool community. I mean, that's part of what's keeping me here right now. Mm -hmm. So when, when do you recommend people hangers on should leave the church? Um, when they need to, when they want to, I, 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 um, that's not really, I, in fact, I, I try to avoid that question. <laughs> I think, mm-hmm. I mean, I really, I very carefully, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time on the introduction of this book, but I very carefully said, this is not an attempt to persuade you to go. And this is not an attempt to persuade you to stay. And this is not about dissing the church. The only, the only audience that makes sense is people who already know they've got questions and who already know that they want to stay for now and they're interested in how can I make that work. But I've had, I mean, I've had readers come back to me and say, um, I did have those questions and you didn't persuade me and I'm gone. And, and um, actually that word, you didn't persuade me, tells me you didn't. I mean, I wasn't trying to. So you, we weren't, you know. We're either on the same page or you've missed the point. I don't know which one of those is a better way to say it. You write about, also we have a chapter about shibboleths and, and phrases, practices that Latter-day Saints as, as members use or employ. Uh, like, for instance, you talk about saying, I know in a testimony instead of I believe. Um, is avoiding use of the word Mormon under President Nelson's edict now a shibboleth? Um, maybe, yeah, maybe, and that, and when I say maybe, it's because a shibboleth doesn't happen by President Nelson saying something from the pulpit. Um, a shibboleth happens by the culture, by the community doing it so much that it's an automatic reference. That 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 anyone who's inside, anybody who knows the culture, will know instantly that you are identified as in or as out they don't have to think about it they will know if you don't use the word i know in your testimony they will know that you're some you're communicating something different and i and i and about the word mormon um we're probably getting there but i remember um i remember the one of the last times in my current ward when i taught gospel doctrine I slipped and used the word Mormon, and then I had a 
you know, I was standing up there and as a teacher, I wasn't intending to do that, but I, I did use it. And then I said some self-reference about I slipped there or, but I got a chuckle out of the group hmm. and the chuckle told me, we know that, you know, that we know that we're kind of as a culture, <laughs> as we're in process on this word. We aren't quite there yet, but we know it's happening. And I, so I don't know. It's not like <laughs> turning over a coffee cup or wearing sleeveless <laughs> right. dresses. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we've gotten quite to the automatic stage, but we're clearly we're we're in process. Now, you use the word Mormon in the book. Did you have any thought about not using it? I did, and I and I wrestled a lot with the with the naming, and I I I went. We went back to the church's um, publication guidelines and and mm -hmm. worked with those. But no, I did that quite intentionally. And because a lot of what I'm talking about is the church as, as culture, the church as society. And I think there, Mormon is the only right word. Mm -hmm. I, there is none of, I mean, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not descriptive of the Mormon culture. And in any event, I'm talking about being on the edge of this thing, which is, which is as much culture as it is institution. Hmm. I also I also liked the quip in the introduction, which was, and I, I I would almost have used it for that very purpose, which was, if you get to this point and see that I'm going to use the word Mormon and that bugs you, then just put the book down. You're not the you're not the right <laughs> you're not the reader <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, you're on Mormon land here, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so speaking of readers and reaction, what has been the reaction to the book, and what do you hope the book might accomplish? Well, the the interesting thing, I mean. I, what I believed going in was that there was an audience that I could have actually pulled out names for several hundred, and I could probably have believed there were several thousand people who had an immediate interest. But in fact, that audience got to be defined by two of my nephews and one of my nieces who learned about the project and came to me privately and said, I need that book. And that actually became my targeted audience. I mean, people I really care about who had, you know, one-on-one -on -one asked me for it. I'll tear up because, you know, really caring about your audience, I think is, I mean, it turned out to be very important for me. Um, and, and so that audience almost know by the, by the cover and the, and the title that they want it. And, and they're buying it and the reaction is, yes, it's what I wanted. And, and that's working kind of like I expected. Um, I'm interested in, and I don't know whether it will ever happen. I'm interested in an audience of what I would call the parents, um, the, the people who are um, parents, siblings, close friends of someone who is wrestling with a church kind of faith crisis and working on this but who want to understand what's going on. I mean, it doesn't, this book doesn't address that audience at all, but I think if you were to read it, you would see kind of like a sociological study, like from the side, this is what's going on in that community and learn a lot. I don't know whether that audience is being reached at all. Um, I'd like it. There's a third audience of what I call the bishops who are you know, current church leaders who 
ought to, ought to pay attention to this part of their congregation. And I would like to, I get a little preachy about that, but it's one reason that I reached out um, to, uh, uh, um, to Lauren Marks, who's at uh, professor at BYU to write a, to write a, a, a board for this book, to try to communicate that that's, that's an important reader. Um, but, What's been interesting to me and sort of surprising is that is that the book is selling, and that there, I mean, that it's sort of broken out of the audiences that I was thinking of. I mean, and I'm I'm curious just because I've written this book and not because I was about you know selling lots of copies. I want distribution, but I don't. I, I'm not in this to make money. I guess um, that in fact, for a couple of days now. This is the bestseller in Mormonism on the Amazon list, um, which is, you know, that's over and above John Krakauer's <laughs> um, work, which is perennially a bestseller in Mormonism, whether you like it or not. Uh, and that's shocking. I mean, not not that I'm negative about that, but it's shocking. It wasn't what anybody expected or intended for this book. And, and what I'm gleaning from individuals so not statistics not sales numbers but from individuals who have come back to talk to me either um when i'm speaking or you know just reading the book and finding me online to, um is that there's a broader audience that um i'm starting to characterize as um quietly in pain quiet pain i mean it is it is people who um come to me and say no, I haven't had a temple recommend in five years. And nobody except my bishop knows that. I don't talk about it. I, I, I mean, I would be shunned if I, mean, I feel bad about that for whatever reason. But I don't talk about it. I don't know. And it hurts. I mean, it's bothering me in various ways. And I'm a second class citizen. I mean, there are ways I go. Um, that's a quiet pain. There are people who have come saying that that exclusion policy or whatever you want to call it in 2015 um, that hurt deeply that really pained me um, really troubled me and I know that's a fact I know that that actually affected a much broader group of people than your normal uh, progressive uh, outspoken dissident kind of group which I would put myself in that category, but I know the reach of people who were hurt was much broader than that. Um, and yet there's a whole class who seem to have made that a shelf item, who have, who were greatly pained, worked through it, stuck around, and who now in 2023 would say, I'm carrying that pain. I've never work through it but nobody knows i mean i'm not out there on sunday talking about it i'm not talking to anybody about it i'm, I'm just carrying that and this book seems to be allowing people i don't know to process that to say well maybe it is okay to talk about that maybe i can work with that issue um i guess a, a third kind of quiet pain that i'm seeing is um parents who would say they're all in, but whose adult children have left the church. And 
who are troubled about their children and, you know, I wish that hadn't happened and all of that. But also fairly surprisingly often, their children leaving the church reflects back on what did I do wrong? Or if my children have these questions and doubts and issues, maybe I better think about that too. I mean, it reflects back in a number of ways, but it's it's a pain that is felt very deeply in various ways. And that that also seems to be an audience that's saying, I this book is maybe this is gonna let me think about that in a constructive way. Um and that's uh again, I don't have any statistics. I don't like but anecdotally, I'm getting those kinds of comments that are saying the um this book wasn't addressed to you, but it is um opening um it's opening a door to have a conversation, to think about your life in a way that is is constructive, where I haven't wanted to deal with this because I thought it would be destructive. And maybe, maybe with some of these tools, maybe with some of this conversation, at least somebody else is having this conversation. Maybe I can too. Maybe I can think about it. And maybe there's a hope for it to be a constructive conversation as opposed to destructive. I think that's, I mean, I would like to think that's what it's doing, but I, I didn't read with, write with that in mind. That's sort of coming, coming back now. The name of the book again is "Living on the Inside of the Edge: A Survival Guide." Christian Kimball, thanks for joining us today. Be well, okay. Thank you, and thanks I, to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Christopher Samuels, we remind you that you can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Solid Tribune's free Mormon Land newsletter. Just go to sotrip.com to sign up, and we'll talk again next time on Mormon Land. Mormon Land.